As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we're going to be taking a look at CONCACAF Olympic qualifying. To do that is a man who has, despite being pursued by other podcast nationalities, pledged his loyalty to, I guess, the American podcast landscape. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, way to do that, buddy. Oh, yes. I I have, in fact, turned down offers from England and uh, a a number of other nations. I am a multinational (laughs) podcaster, and I'm just I'm really excited for the future here, Taylor. (laughs) <laughs> that, that makes me really happy. We are going to release a hype video later on of you <laughs> asking people if they're ready for your podcasting, which is, I guess, our way of transitioning. We are going to talk about uh, the CONCACAF Olympic qualifying, as I said. We're going to talk U.S. roster, uh, the U.S. opponents, and some of their key players. But first, we're going to start with the news that Yunus Musa has declared he will play for the U.S. men's national team. Here's the, the full quote that I could find. I think it was pretty clear for me to decide to play for the United States. First of all, I think it makes sense to represent the country I was born in. The moment I decided to play for the United States came one day when my heart told me that this was the best place for me. The project that we have now and for the future is so exciting, and it's a great pleasure to be able to be a part of that. I cannot wait to get started. Joe, I I think as I have sort of given away on past episodes, assumed that it was going to be a very uphill battle to get Yunus Musa to commit to the U.S. men's national team to the point where I was sort of like, if he does, that's great, but I feel like he's going to play for England Thus, I was very surprised when this news came so quickly and so positively for the U.S. Were you surprised? What was your reaction when you saw it? I was surprised, but but just because of how the news came out. I wasn't expecting to wake up, check my email, mm-hmm. and see an email from U.S. Soccer in there with five different links to to content they created about this this whole situation. So I was surprised, but I think I think I was always more optimistic. Maybe it sounds like a slightly slightly more optimistic than you were. Mm-hmm. Just because of the connection that the coaching staff, that U.S. soccer's coaching staff, the U.S. men's national team's coaching staff had with Musa. Nico Estevez is one of Berhalter's assistant coaches, and, and Estevez was at Valencia as a coach, and he did a couple different things with Valencia in La Liga in the past before he came and, and joined up with Berhalter. And so they had that connection with Estevez. They had that kind of in that England just didn't have. 
And they used it. There was a great article. I'm sure you read it, Taylor, by yep. Jeff Carlisle in ESPN. They use that connection, and, and Carlisle wrote all about this. Go check it out, listeners, if you haven't already. They use that connection to maintain a line of contact with Musa consistently over the last, you know, 18 months or whatever it was. They've, they've stayed in touch with him ever since he arrived at Valencia from England. They use that connection so well. They were diligent in, in their contact with Musa and their relationship and developing that relationship. So yeah, I'm always n- trying not to allow myself to become too mm-hmm. optimistic about anything because I don't, I don't want to, you know, feel depressed when things don't happen <laughs> that I want to happen. But yeah. I, I think I wasn't entirely shocked by this just because the men's national team is proving themselves to be pretty good relationship builders. Yeah, I want to talk about that that last point in a moment. But first, I want to say, like, I saw a tweet about this a while back, and, and it is a thing for me. I think it's a Southern thing that, like, a way to get off the phone. Uh, if my mother is listening, my mom is very good at doing this. Uh, and I think I learned it from her. But it's the, like, all right, well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Let me let you go. And it's a sort of, like... I'm ready to get off the phone, but I don't really want to say like I'm done talking to you. So it's like, oh, all right, let me let you go. I, I've, I've been talking about your ear off. Um, and I feel like maybe that was my approach to Yunus Musa. It's sort of like, I'm going to let you go before you let us go. Yeah, <laughs> And yeah. I'm bringing up with you before you bring up with me, but in a very friendly, gent- gentle way. And I think maybe that cynicism, maybe it's like a hesitation to be sort of like, no, he's going to choose America. Because I think I do feel a little bit immediately uncomfortable talking about like, oh, America's the best. He's going to choose us. It just, it's basically, I think I was telling, forget who I was telling this recently, that it's like kind of the first like American hype moment I've had in a while of like, yay, America, we did something that wasn't horrible. <laughs> like that's, that's, I think part of the optimism and enthusiasm for this announcement that I was feeling, but also why I was sort of hesitant to be like, no, he's definitely going to choose the US. Come on. Like I just didn't <laughs> really think it was going to happen. And so it did. And I think to your point, Joe, as well, the way it happened, it reminds me, and I mean this in the best possible way, of all of the stories you hear about, like, college basketball recruiting yep. and college football to some yep. extent. But without him being promised a Benz or something like that by a booster, like, it's uh, – I think I, I pulled some quotes from that article. Uh, Spanish club uh, Valencia notified Nico Estevez, a U.S. men's assistant and former Valencia coach, that there was a player with a U.S. passport on that roster. Musa says that from that moment uh, that the U.S. first made contact, he and Estevez – spoke at least once every two weeks. Burhalter added that sometimes they spoke every other day. Um, and essentially it got to the point where Estevez was sending him clips and sort of here's what didn't work in this game or here's what we think you could work on. And he became a sort of like video source or a source of how Musa could improve his game. And when you have that relationship, it does then make sense why he would want to stick with a person who he has that relationship with because of his club experience. But now with the national team, Greg Berhalter reaching out and kind of staying active, being proactive in keeping the player involved and keeping those conversations going. It just feels a lot more involved and connected and active than I think I fully realized. I think I kind of assumed scouting was Berhalter goes around Europe. He watches some games. He talks to some people. I didn't realize quite how intense it was. I think one of the things that Greg Berhalter and the rest of his staff, clearly, continuing to give credit to Nico Aceves, I think one of the mm-hmm. best things that he's done that will extend beyond his time with the U.S. men's national team is develop a, a system that involves building relationships with the players in the pool. Those could mm-hmm. be players that just are American and they don't have other nationalities in their in their background. Or it could be players like Yunus Musa, Serginho Dest. Andres Perea, who I think we'll talk about later. He's on this U.S. Olympic qualifying roster. Um, Jordan Sibachu. It could be players that have the ability to go and play for other countries, 
Berhalter and his staff have built this network and built this habit of going out and talking with these players and texting with them, sharing video clips with them, pointing out things to them, building relationships with them, even after Berhalter and the rest of his staff are gone. Because, you know, he's probably not going to be the coach in 2026, right? That's That doesn't happen a whole lot in the international game. Even after this whole group of coaches is gone from the U.S. men's side of the Federation, the work that they've done to bring in players like Yunus Musa and to make them feel wanted, that will be their lasting impact after this staff is gone. I think that's huge. I get caught up in the tactical side of things so often, and that's just kind of the way I am. But there are so many other facets to being a coach, and especially being an international coach. I just want to give Berhalter and the rest of his coaching staff credit for the work they've done, not just with Yunus Musa, but with all of the other dual national players I've mentioned. And I'm confident, Taylor, that they're doing more work with other dual nationals that we just haven't even talked about before. Yeah, I mean, to the to the extent that, like, again, Yunus Musa was a like, hey, we have an American with like a, an American passport in our team, exactly. and that's kind of all it took uh, because you have those contacts and that level of reach. And I go back to Jonathan Gonzalez choosing to play for Mexico over the United States, and at the time that felt like this massive blow. And though he hasn't become this Ballon d'Or winning player, he may still, but at time of recording, he is not a regular starter for the uh, Mexican national team. I do still think it could have been a major blow. It could have been yeah. Yeah. a big sign of of shifting allegiances. There's other players on the Mexican team that we're going to talk about today that could have played for the United States or were eligible to and aren't. And and if that continued to go that way, maybe we lose more uh, dual nationals to Mexico. Maybe we lose a few more to Central America or to South America. And then at the same time, if we're not figuring things out and having active networks and active recruiting in Europe, do we get Serginho Dest? I don't know. If we don't get Dest, do we get Musa? I think probably not. Like, I think there are things that are connected that dominoes that did fall and needed to or didn't and very much needed not to. And so for us to have gone from Jonathan Gonzalez and the way I was sort of feeling about the program to now, it says a lot about how things have grown. And at least on the men's side, I'm inclined to say that a huge part of that is Greg Berhalter and the work he has done and the kind of diligence that he has brought to the recruitment process, but I think also the atmosphere in that team, though they haven't played many games together, especially not like meaningful competitive games, it's still clear that there's a connection there. There's a friendship there. There's, uh, I don't know, just a positive vibe around that camp. Uh, I saw the quote, I forget who uh, tweeted it, so I apologize, but it was the quote from, maybe it was Bells, um, Sebastian Soto being asked about the Yunus Musa decision and him saying like, yeah, I want to text him today just so I can say like I was part of it. Yeah. But it does imply that they do all text and they are all sort of like, hey, man, what you going to do? You uh, Like if you're playing uh, like if we're all going to do a FIFA World Cup, sort of are you uh, picking the U.S.? Like what's happening there? Like I can picture those little conversations happening. And I think there's probably a friendliness and an inclusiveness to that side. And I'm not saying there isn't with England, but I think there are bigger personalities that are probably Harry Kane is probably not texting young dual nationals to see what they're up to the way I think Weston McKinney probably is. But I think also if Burhalter is aware of the footage and aware of what he's doing with Valencia and says, like, here's what you're doing here. Here is one. Here's how I want to use you here. Yes, you're wide for Valencia, but I want to use you centrally. That's what Joe Lowry says I should do. And that's what I've told Joe Lowry we should do. So together we'll make that happen. Like, I think. Even if he's told you might not be a starter, we might not be able to guarantee minutes for you, but this is how we see you fitting into the team. This is how we see you developing. Even if Gareth Southgate says we do see you fitting into the team, we're not quite, you know, like we're not quite sure how. Like, I just I I don't think there was probably as much of a packaged proposal, a, a sort of pitch that he probably got from U.S. soccer. And I think that may also have made the difference. So. 
it's a weird thing to be saying positive things about the Federation, about the national team coach, and about a player joining the U.S., but here we are. It all just feels very positive. The culture of the U.S. men's national team, I'm pretty confident in saying is is better now than certainly it's been in the last six or eight years. The culture right now is a positive one. Certainly three, four, five years ago, that wasn't the case. So that's a big win. Taylor, one direction I also want to take this conversation is giving credit to fans for this. Mm-hmm. Yunus Musa had a quote that said, the U.S. supporters have been really warm and made me feel yep. wanted and appreciated. They gave me huge support even when I'm with my club. I love seeing all their comments on Instagram. This is a theme we've seen with Serginho Dest as well. These players that are in a younger generation, they're on social media. They're seeing what people are saying about them in ways that maybe players in an older generation just aren't or aren't looking yeah. for and aren't seeking out. Musa, you know, sees every person commenting on his Instagram post with American flags. He sees all the people talking about how excited they'd be if he played for the U.S. men's national team. The fans played a huge part in this move. Maybe not the most important part, but they certainly played a big part. And I think that's pretty cool. And just a reminder of how the dual national recruiting landscape, if you want to put it that way, has changed over the last five or ten years. Certainly. And, and, and I'm not going to go so far as to say that other players wouldn't choose England or Italy or Ghana, uh, the other, the other countries that he could have chosen. And, and I wouldn't even, I'm certainly not saying like the U.S. is now a power over England, but I will say that probably checking, if he searched his name in Twitter, I'm going to guess the comments are all like, did you see what he did for Valencia? I hope he plays for the U.S. I don't know how many, England flags there would have been, how much hype there would have been about him, because England don't need that right now. Maybe a few years from now they will. If the roles were to reverse, maybe they are a bit more aggressive. But it's it's a luxury that they don't really have to get into, but it does also mean that they're not kind of pursuing players in that way, and the fans aren't as attuned to what young Englishmen are doing on the continent at 17 or 18 years of age because they have so many talented players playing in their domestic league already or playing in the second division or even the third division. So I think there there is certainly a leg up there, but I also think there's probably like a positivity and exuberance for this young player who's breaking through Valencia and is just an exciting player. I think that can't be overestimated either, that if he's a center back who's very good at being a center back, it's probably less exciting as watching him make some of those Musa maneuvers and those slaloming runs oh, yeah. and those like running out of bounds and yet somehow outrunning the, def- the defender who has stayed in bounds and getting to the ball first and then continuing forward. Like there's just a hypeness to the way he plays that I think also keeps people excited, keeps people enthusiastic. And so, yeah, if all of those comments are American flag, you're the best player in the world, American flag, please play for the USA, American flag. You might think we're a little bit stalkerish, which I guess we are when it comes to these matters, but you also might just be excited that that many people care. Yeah, no, and that's a really good point, Joe. I'm glad you you raised that one. It is it is a fine line between stalkerish and enthusiastic. <laughs> I don't know how you know how Yunus Musa decides that it, it's one way versus the other way, and that he feels appreciated and not mm-hmm. freaked out. But I'm glad that things fell on the right side of that line. My my final thing I wanted to ask about, and it's probably a minor thing, but like I'm wondering where you are with this one. Is that we like Dest has now committed to the U.S. Musa has like has committed. Like I know there's still a, a like scientific possibility that he could play for somebody sure, else, sure. but I think when you when you make the hype video saying I'm all in or you or whatever it was, like you're pretty much telling people how it's going to be. When you get your own hashtag, Taylor, you, you're <laughs> exactly in. It's exactly like and so I think where I am now is I know there are other players out there that that could play for the U.S. that I'm assuming Burhalter is talking to. Some of them. I know could, uh, to your earlier point, some of them we might not know are eligible for the U.S. and that will kind of come to light in the next couple of years. Like, 
like, do you do you think that the next big dual national to come along, if they do choose another like country, do you feel better about it because of the way things have gone? Because I do think that if it was like Gonzalez and then Dest waffled and then decided to play for the U.S., but then Musa didn't, I think I'm still sort of feeling like, I mean, it seems like it's working okay, but sometimes we miss it, miss out and that's life. And I think right now, I guess what I'm saying is that I have more of a, probably an expectation because it's gone well two times in a row. And I'm not sure that's the best place to be in. Again, that might be that cynicism, let me let you go thing. So I'm wondering if you are now in more of a like, yeah, we're going to get the next one too. Or are you in more of a, hopefully we get the next one too mindset? I'm almost in third camp. I think I'm in the camp that says whatever happens is okay. Not because, you know, losing players to other countries or or missing out on opportunities to see dual nationals Mm. play for the U.S. Not because that's a good thing, but because I have the belief and trust, and I hope others do as well, that what the U.S. men's national team's coaching staff is doing has worked before. And if it doesn't work, that doesn't mean that they've stopped trying. You know, if they don't get yeah. Florian Balogun, who's a young striker playing in England right now, he's eligible mm-hmm. for England or the United States, he's at Arsenal. If if Musa and his commitment to the U.S. doesn't sway Balogun and, and the relationship that U.S. soccer, I'm confident that U.S. soccer is building with Balogun. I don't know anything, but that it does seem like we can infer that. If that doesn't work yep. out and, and he goes and plays for England, I'm not going to be devastated because that doesn't mean that what Berhalter is doing isn't isn't working or won't work again. It just means that it didn't work that time. The effort is more important, I think, than the result, if that makes sense, even though that's kind of not true in terms of actually getting good players. No, it it, it does make sense. And it's also a reminder that, like, that effort should be rewarded and appreciated. And so to some extent, immediately moving to like, all right, who's next and what happens is probably not as helpful as like, yeah, we got this guy. Let's all just enjoy watching Valencia this weekend and hope he plays. Let's enjoy watching him in that in that next national team game, knowing that he has made that commitment and just be very, very happy about uh, that matter until Olympic qualifying starts. And then we can uh, be nervous all <laughs> over again, which is uh, where we're going to go next. First, we're going to take a word to hear from today's sponsors. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. All right, Joseph Lowry, you're getting first and last, uh, the formal naming, because we're getting into a formal competition. Uh, this Thursday, the U.S. kicks off its Olympic qualifying campaign against Costa Rica. Uh, we have the roster. We have it officially, even if we maybe had it unofficially earlier than that. Uh, let's go through, Joe, since we have not yet really talked about this roster. Let's look at the roster itself. Let's figure out some uh, answers to some questions we might have. Then uh, near the end of the show, we'll look at the U.S.'s three group stage opponents. But let's start with the roster and let's start, I think, in the natural position. Let's go with goalkeeper, Joe. Who are our three options in goal? Before we do that, you may have been planning to get to this later, but do we want to give a little bit of context for what these games actually are or what on earth is going on and why we're talking about this at all? Or do you want to touch on that later? 
Joe, I think it's really important before we get going to give some context <laughs> to this because, you know, people might be less familiar with Olympic qualifying and why it might be important. Why maybe it's uh, oh. it hasn't been appointment viewing the U.S. Uh, men's team at the Olympics and recent Olympics. So, yeah, Joe, why don't we get into that? Oh, that was beautiful. That was really well done. I'll give some context here. So there are eight Thank teams you. down in Mexico for qualifying mm-hmm. uh, for this, uh, you know, for the Tokyo Olympics. So there's eight teams split into two groups. So the USA's group is with Mexico, Costa Rica, the Dominican Republic, and then the U.S. And then the other group is Honduras, Canada, El Salvador, and Haiti. The way you get to the Olympics from this tournament down in Mexico, the top two teams from each group advance to the semifinals. And then the two teams that win their semifinal game qualify for the Olympics. So then they also get to play in the final for fun, I guess. I'm not really sure what the significance of that game is. But it's kind the, of champions. the key is to win is to win your semifinal game. So you got to make it out of the group, finish top two, then win that semifinal. The U.S. is in a tougher group. I think we'll talk about this later yep. as well. But when you're with Mexico and Costa Rica in a CONCACAF competition, you're in the tougher group. So the U.S. has a more of a challenge to get out of their group, but if they do, theoretically, the semifinal game that they'll be playing against either Honduras, Canada, El Salvador, or Haiti will be easier than if they were in the other group and had to match up with themselves. Again, this is a fictional world, or Mexico or Costa Rica. So it's kind of a, you know, a, a push and pull here. There's, there's some positive, there's some negative, but hopefully that lays the groundwork. It's a, a U23 roster. This is not a senior level competition. Because the Olympics, for men's soccer at least, is not is not a full senior squad event. So we're not going to see a lot of players in this group and on this roster that are are the big names because this isn't a senior level competition. Clubs don't have to release their players. So no Pulisic, no McKenney, no Adams, etc. It's mostly U.S. based players with a few with a few exceptions. Excuse me. So I think that lays the context in some of the groundwork here, Taylor. Hopefully that satisfies your original brilliant request. <laughs> I think it does. Uh, do we want to talk about previous teams at this point, or do we want to maybe hold that off for later, if at all? We can we can hold that off, if that's okay with okay. you. Okay, fool. F- sure, and <laughs> cool. And I went with fool instead. Yes, that is fool with me. All right, now let's talk about this roster. Then uh, head coach Jason Kreis. Uh, from the 48-man provisional squad, he has reduced it to 31, and now 20 we have our 20 player roster joe who do we have as our options in goal in goal we've got matt freeze 22 year old that plays for the philadelphia union jt marcinkowski 23 years old from the san jose earthquakes and then david ochoa who's 20 and plays for real salt lake all of those guys come from major league soccer taylor this is an interesting group it's a tough group because the u.s isn't particularly deep at goalkeeper right now so you've got for the senior level kind of Zach Steffen and yeah. Matt Turner, Sean Johnson, and a couple other guys that are hanging around in MLS, Brad Guzan, Bill Hamid, et cetera. But when you get down to a U23 competition, technically it's U24 because qualifying got pushed back a year from 2020. It was canceled during the pandemic. Now it's in 2021. So FIFA just kept that same age cap. So there are a couple of 24-year-olds on this roster. But Matt Fries is not a regular starter for the Union. JT Marcinkowski did become the regular starter for Almeida at the end of last year, but he still hasn't played a lot of minutes in MLS. David Ochoa is not a regular for RSL either. He had an injury, correct? Yeah, he had an injury. Of an injury in January? Yeah. No, mm-hmm. I think he had an injury, and he, he played some in USL over the last couple of years. Former U-20 World Cup starter for the U.S. later on in that tournament in 2019. But this isn't a this isn't a super strong group, and it's hard for me to pick one player that's you know the most likely starter or anything like that, just because we don't have a lot of data on these guys. Yeah, I think I think you're not alone. Uh, Jason Kreis has more or less said that exactly. Um, 
I think basically saying that they may have an out and out starter from the, from the very first day that will be their starter for all of the games. But it's also possible that we will see, I think it was either stated or heavily implied that it would be Jason, JT Marcinkowski in one game, Matt Freese in another, and then a decision would be made about who the starter will be from that point on. It does sound like it's Marcinkowski's spot to sort of lose, or at least he is in the number one position if there was a starting a lineup. Tomorrow, or I guess there will be in a couple days, so we'll know then. But it would be really interesting to see that rotation at first. I think interesting because it would make both those players feel a lot of pressure, but I think it would also tell us sort of what Jason Christ was looking for. Because I don't think it's just a matter of like, oh, they each conceded a goal or he conceded one and he didn't. I'm going to assume it's a lot more to do with their positioning, their willingness to come for crosses, if he needs them to be a sweeper keeper, which one of them is more capable of that. So I think if we do get a change from the first game to the second game, I don't know if it is Freeze against the, the Dominican Republic. I'm assuming that will be an easier game. So even then, I don't know if it's sort of going to be as useful of an exercise and like, yeah. okay, they both got five shots who did better. But I think it probably is who looks more comfortable is what will be the major takeaway. If we get that rotation, if it's Mar- Marcinkowski in the first game and in the second game, then I think we have our answer for who's going to start for the rest of the competition. Yeah, the U.S. plays Costa Rica first in their first group stage game, mm-hmm. then the Dominican Republic and then Mexico. And so if Marcinkowski or whoever starts the first two games in the group, I don't picture anybody getting thrown in cold turkey against Mexico unless the U.S. has already got their spot wrapped up and is headed to the semifinals and they don't need to win that game against Mexico. They've beaten Costa Rica. They've beaten the Dominican Republic. Then maybe you rotate heavily for that Mexico game and just say, you know, whatever happens in this game, we don't really care. But yeah, I think from what I've read, it sounds like it. Marcinkowski might be in the pole position, but yeah, we'll just kind of have to wait and see. All right. Should we move to defense? Let's do it, Taylor. Who we got? We've got uh, Julian Araujo or Araujo, if you are Juan Carlos, Juan Carlos Osorio. <laughs> We've got uh, Julian Araujo, 19-year-old of the LA Galaxy, uh, expected to be a right back. Uh, we've got Aaron Herrera of Real Salt Lake. He can, by my understanding, be either fullback, uh, more commonly a right back, but I uh, can fill in there. The other fullback would be Sam Vines, 21 years old of the Colorado Rapids. I love Mason F- Sam Vines. I drafted him, to, him into my uh, Quidditch team for the list of question show we had last week. And then we've got our the three players remaining in the defense would be uh, center back Justin Glad of RSL, center back Mauricio Pineda of the Chicago Fire, and center back Henry Kessler of the New England Revolution. It's an interesting group, again, of players, some of whom were involved when Jason Christ called up this group of players back last year, and they were getting ready for, for Olympic qualifying. And some of those players that Christ brought in then, like Mark McKenzie, are are not with this group anymore because they've they've moved over and are mm-hmm. playing in Europe now and are not released. So we've seen some players that were in both of those call up lists, and we've seen some players that are new. Mauricio Pineda and Henry Kessler, I believe, are both new to this group or, or or a little bit newer to this group. And I I like them both. I guess we're starting in the center of defense. I didn't plan on that, Taylor, but I <laughs> I like Henry Kessler. I like Mauricio Pineda. Maybe players that listeners haven't seen as much of because they play in MLS. They were both rookies last year. I like Pineda a lot. He's a really good passer of the ball, which is how Rafael Vicky wants that fire team to play in MLS. So I think that's a quality that really fits with how Jason Kreiss and, and Greg Berhalter want the U.S. teams to look starting at the senior group, then down to the 23s, and then even into the youth level. So I like Pineda a lot. Kessler, we haven't seen him pass the ball as much under Bruce Arena because that's not really how Bruce Arena plays. But he's a big guy, can win balls in the air. He's got some mobility. He's right-footed, but he typically plays on the left for New England. So he could do that left center back job in a back four for the U.S. as well. 
And then Justin Glad, we, we've seen more of Justin Glad than either one of these two guys. He's been in MLS for a, li- uh, for a while. excuse me. He played a solid amount of minutes under Freddy Juarez last year, but is not really a standout MLS center back at this point. He's a serviceable option along with the other two guys in the center back core. Looking at the, the defense, like in a broader perspective, with the fullbacks, if you had to guess who do you think would be the, the starting left back, the starting right back, and I ask with an eye towards, based on the sort of, the big issue has been a lack of creativity and maybe a lack of attacking flair, which we will certainly talk about, but to preempt that, I wanted to ask how much of a role you think the fullbacks will play in the attack for the United States, and if that answer is a significant one, then again, who do you think uh, does the best job, provides the most attacking option? Oh, man, it's so hard because of how Christ built this roster and and because you're missing kind of the attacking fullbacks that the senior team typically has. Dest would mm-hmm. be age-eligible, but not yep. in this group. He's overplaying for Barcelona. Reggie Cannon, same situation. I believe he's age-eligible still, not in I this group. Uh, Anthony Robinson, similar situation. So you've got yep. all of the kind of uh, Brian Reynolds, same same deal. The more attacking fullbacks that Berhalter has used to bomb up the wings really aren't in this group. We've seen Sam Vines do that job sort of, and we've seen Araujo and Herrera do that job as well in December and in January in those domestic-based camps. But none of those players really bomb up the wing the way Robinson or Dest or even Cannon do for the full senior team. So I'm almost wondering how big of a role those guys are going to play. I think they'll still occupy the wide channels, but I could see Christ pull out a different rotation that would maybe keep them a little bit deeper or maybe tuck one inside. Greg Velasquez of the Scuff Podcast talked a little bit about some rotations that we could see that might be different just because of how this roster is constructed. But I think Vines is the the starter at left back for sure. Herrera probably has a slight edge over Araujo at right back. But I could see that right back spot going to either one of those guys. And I, th- I still think they'll be involved in the attack, just certainly not dest levels of involved. So this isn't a, a defensive question. It's more of a players not uh, not being there question, because heading into qualifying, I sort of thought like, OK, we didn't qualify in 2012. We didn't qualify in 2015 when we played these competitions. This time we have to. If we don't, something is seriously wrong. And in looking at the players that you've already mentioned who could have been there or even the players who were on the U20 roster and aren't here, players like Serginho Dest, Mark McKenzie, Chris Richards, Paxton Pomacall, Conrad De La Fuente, Timothy Weah, like there are so many names and that's not even looking at like I think Tyler Adams still might be yep. in there. I think Weston McGinney still yep. might be in. Like there are so many players that could be there. This sounds like like an easy soundbite to pull and then make fun of me for. But like I, I think in researching this team and who could have been there, I, I'm sort of less nervous about it. That if they don't qualify, I will be very sad and I want the U.S. to play in as many competitions as possible. But it doesn't feel as much like a sort of like a uh what's what's the term I'm trying the sky's to look at? Like not a, falling the sky's not yeah falling, right? it's, it's not it's not quite a like oh see here it is this is this is the thesis statement on the program is failing if they don't qualify it's sort of like well yeah they didn't qualify because they're so good like the program has gotten better yeah. that so many players are being are playing abroad and not being released even in major league soccer there's players not being released we had three from atlanta being held with their clubs like this could be a much stronger roster not to say that it's a bad roster just to say that when you look at the names that are eligible but not there it makes me feel way happier about the state of u.s soccer to the extent that if they don't qualify i think it's not an excuse, but it is definitely part of the reason why. Yeah, if they don't qualify, I'll take it. I'll take it one step further. Everything's fine. This is not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is not the end of the world. This is maybe a B U twenty three squad for the U S. Maybe kind of a, a B C squad mm-hmm. for the U S. If you look at the depth chart of just sheer sheer U twenty three players, 
a lot of these guys wouldn't be top two. Some of them might be, but others wouldn't be. Sam Vines definitely would be, but it, it depends on the player. So if the U.S. doesn't qualify, that's not an indictment of the pool. It's not an indictment of the program. We opened this show, Taylor, talking about a really talented young central midfielder that's committed to play for the U.S. men's national team. He's not in this group. If he was, he would be 100% a starter in this camp. That that same general principle applies to so many other players. If the U.S. doesn't qualify, it, it definitely it definitely isn't ideal because we'd still like to see them play as many games as possible, like you said. But it is certainly not the end of the world. All right. All right. Cool. I'm glad we're on the same page about that one. I just wanted to get that out up front because I do think it factors into a lot of like my perception of this team, because with other iterations, both in terms of qualifying in World Cup qualifying, I think there's always that pressure of what happens if we don't, what happens if we don't. And it informs the way you see this team of like, is this guy good enough? Is this going to be enough? Are we going to have enough here? And I think people who do feel that way about this team totally justified because it's an international competition we want to go to. But I think I just I have less of that this time around because it's hard for me to be like, well, this means that we don't have any good right backs if if we have def- like like a deficiency there. And it's like, no, we've got 15 potential right. starting right backs. It's less of an issue for me. So I still want to qualify. I just wanted to get that one uh, out up front. Uh, but back to the defense then, Joe, uh, looking at those three center backs we've already talked about. Um, if we do have sort of the this team mirroring what Greg Berhalter wants his team to to be doing, it would stand to reason that we need uh, center backs who are comfortable on the ball. Who do you think of those three is, is the most comfortable in distribution in picking out some slightly more challenging passes? Pineda, for sure. He cool. he does that a lot for Chicago. I don't know how good of a passer Kessler is. Glad is is serviceable in that regard. I think he doesn't have to do a lot of that with RSL either. So just because of his club situation and because of his actual skill set, Pineda is is definitely the best passer in this group. All right. Uh, let's then move to midfield, uh, unless you have anything else to say about defense. No, let's carry on. All right. Uh, I will invite you to list our midfielders, <laughs> Joe, because it's sort of confusing the way this roster is uh, broken down. So I leave it to you to decide how you want to talk about our midfield. Yeah, so I, the, the roster release from U.S. soccer was useless in this regard. So I'm just going to do it my own way. Sure. Uh, the central defensive midfielders. I'm, I'm just going to list four players in that spot, and then we can delineate them a little sure. bit more after that. Jackson Yule. Because <laughs> there's one more to be discussed after yeah, that, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of. <laughs> yeah. Jackson Yule, a uh, 23-year-old uh-huh. from the San Jose Earthquakes, a player that's played for the senior team. Uh, we've seen him get some some caps over the last year and change with the full national team. Andres Perea, who we first got a glimpse of, I believe, in January camp, recently committed dual national uh, that used to play for Columbia's youth teams. He's a 20-year-old 20, 20 from Orlando City. Then Johnny Cardoso, a.k.a. Johnny Soccer, 19-year-old who plays for Internacional in Brazil. And then Hassani Dotson, 23-year-old midfielder from Minnesota United in Major League Soccer. Then there's technically one more kind of central midfielder in this group. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily sure he's going to play there, but it's Georgi Mihailovic, 22-year-old yep. for CF Montreal, got traded from the Chicago Fire this offseason. He was going to get to play for Thierry Henry, but that's not going to happen anymore. It's such a strange group of midfielders, and I'm not even sure, again, that Mihailovic should be involved in this. It's a lot of defensive-minded players, Georgie being the, the main exception to that. Cardoso has played as the six for the U.S. before. Dotson plays typically as half of a double pivot for Minnesota United, but he's played some fullback, and he's also played some central midfielder in midfield three. Jackson Ewell is a six, even though he plays as part of a double pivot with San Jose. He is a number six. He's that that deep-lying player. And then Andres Perea came on and played as a six 
for the U.S. men's national team against mm-hmm. Trinidad and Tobago in that second half and actually pushed Jackson Ewell forward. He pushed the six forward to an eight because he's even more of a six, at least in Greg Berhalter's eyes, than Jackson Ewell is. Taylor, this midfield group confuses me just a little bit. It confuses me as well because I think with the way that we expect them to play and Christ talked about this, that we're not really going to have like a true number 10. We're not going to have this kind of number 10 who sits ahead of the midfield and doesn't have much responsibility. Sounds like he's expecting to have a number six and two number eights. Yep. Uh, everybody in midfield will be responsible for defending and defensive cover, but then the number eights are still expected to get into the box. And I'm with you that then when you look at the kind of breakdown that we have, that doesn't make sense as much. It, it makes a lot more sense if this team were going with a 4-2-3-1, especially because he said in talking about the number nine spot, we have two options there we like. Uh, and that's why Jeremy uh, Ibobasi was not involved. But there are three strikers in my mind that could play there. One of them could be, though, that like number 10 if you wanted to try that. And so to some extent, it makes more sense for to me for them to be in a 4-2-3-1 with Mihailovic as that number 10, maybe with Jesus Ferreira playing there as well. But it doesn't sound like that's what we're going to get. So then that does mean that we're probably going to have Jackson Ewell as the starting number six would be my assumption. It stands to reason that if we want any creativity and attacking play from that midfield, it has to be Mihailovic as one of the hybrid number eights, which leaves a spot open. Are you with me so far or does anything I'm saying not track? I don't know, man. I I am with you in principle, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's going to pan out that way. I, I want to say okay. just again to reiterate. All signs are pointing towards Jason Christ playing a 4-3-3 that mirrors almost exactly how the U.S. men's national team plays on principle. We could see some different rotations, as I mentioned earlier, but that general defensive shape, maybe that's the easiest way to describe it, that 4-3-3 that presses high and then when they do need to go back in their half is more of a 4-5-1. That's the shape that Greg Berhalter's team uses. I think we can expect that shape with this U23 team and Jason Christ as well. The reason why I think, and I tweeted this out, I think last week when the roster dropped, the reason why I believe Christ chose the midfield players that he did, number one, there aren't a ton of creative central midfield options available to him in the first place. So we can gripe and say Eric Williamson wasn't on this roster, but he's not infinitely more creative than Andres Perea or Hassani Dotson. We can say Tanner Tessman's not on this roster. I don't think he's ready for this type of competition anyway. So you can set that aside even and say the three midfielders in Berhalter's midfield that we saw in November in the last games against Wales and uh, Panama, that we saw the full the full European contingent. It was Tyler Adams starting at the six, Yunus Musa and Weston McKinney starting at the two number eights. Those have those, those players have some creative ability, Taylor, but they're not you know they're not number tens. No, they're yeah. not through ball threaders. They're they're workers, and they're going to do some awesome things on the ball. McKinney can turn out of a out of a tight pickle. Musa can make those maneuvers up that right side if he needs to, but they're not creative uber creative players. That same general principle applies to this group. Andres Perea, not uber creative, can hit a pass, but, you know, not not going to do a ton of crazy stuff on the ball. Same with Cardoso, Hassani Dotson as well. These guys are here, I believe, to press. They're here to do the defensive mm, work, even though okay. Cardoso doesn't fit as much into that category. I don't really understand Johnny Soccer at all, even though I watched film on him for a while yesterday. I don't quite get his game right now. But I believe that the midfield group that Jason Christ brought in was brought in to press before anything else. And that's probably why we don't see a ton of creative players in addition just to the lack of available options in the pool. So let's stick with Cardoso for a moment, because I would love to hear more about him. He's a player that we've talked about. I've talked about fairly briefly, I think, in one of our Americans Abroad Roundup shows. Uh, we're not going to be doing as much of that this week since we're talking about this instead. But Yunus Musa playing for the U.S., there's your Americans Abroad Roundup. There you go, boom. Why is Johnny Cardoso a conundrum to you? 
So he played as a six in both of those friendlies in November as well, coming off Mm -hmm. the bench for Tyler Adams in both of those games. But then Jason Kreiss had a quote about trying Cardoso at the eight and seeing this creative ability in the attacking half. And and I guess he got that look at Cardoso from a previous U23 camp before the world went to, to crap, kind of. Yeah. But... I watched the film, Taylor, and I'm not Jason Christ. Christ has a better view of, of Cardoso than I do, certainly. I'm also certain he's a better talent evaluator than I am. But now that I got all those disclaimers well, out of the let's way. Let's not go too far. Okay, let's not okay, go too but far. I've got, I'm covered. I got the disclaimers out of the way. Yeah. I, I don't see it from Johnny Cardoso. He's 19, so I'm not saying, you know, he's not going to be a good player. He's not already a good player. But he's not really a creative passer in the attacking half. He's not mobile defensively. And so if you wanted to play as an eight, He's not really a perfect presser. He's not a good fit for that job. And if you want him to play as an eight and get on the ball in the attack, I don't think he really brings a whole lot there either. But then you have him as a six, and you're facing the same issue you have with Jackson Ewell. He's not super mobile, and I don't think he's a better passer than Jackson Ewell is right now either. So I see him as a depth option at the number six, but I guess Christ sees him as a number eight that could start in these games. I just I just don't quite see what Christ sees. We did have Cardoso getting uh, a goal against Pelotas, uh, so maybe that's part of it. It's yeah. like he saw him score and was like, oh, he can score a goal. That means <laughs> he's attacking. Let's just put him there. But it, but it, so then it sounds like overall, though, you would expect this team to be like a bit more physical and aggressive in their defensive approach and less so tiki-taki Barcelona. Yeah, I think that's just the direction the pool is moving right now. I think sure. Liverpool is the best club comparison for what Berhalter is trying to build this program into. They play a 4-3-3. They press aggressively a lot of the time. They stay roughly in that shape. They have the center backs back as a pairing. Then they move the full backs high when they have the personnel to do that. The midfield three are all workers with some creativity if you're Tiago. And then it's the more false nine, Roberto Firmino, a.k.a. Jesus Ferreira, dropping in and wingers running in behind. That is the direction we've seen the U.S. move, at least in possession and, and even defensively as well over the last calendar year. So I think that's roughly going to be mirrored by this U23 group. All right. Anything else to say on the central part of the midfield before we move on to the more attacking part? Just to say, I I do think it's possible we see a couple more rotations and maybe the possession mm-hmm. shape changes from what the senior team's been doing after I just pointed out all the similarities and what Berhalter's trying to build. But uh, I don't know exactly what those rotations will be. and I don't think they're especially likely, but they are possible. All right. Uh, Joe says rotation's possible. I agree. Uh, we are going to take a break to hear from today's sponsors, and then we will be back to round out the roster and talk about the U.S.'s opponents in CONCACAF Olympic qualifying. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
All right, Joe, we've got, by my count, six players still to be discussed, so I'm going to address them now, basically by lumping them all together and saying that we've got a few different attacking options. Uh, in terms of the wings, if we are going with a 4-3-3, uh, we have Jonathan Lewis, Sebastian Salcedo, and uh, Ulianez as the sort of wider options, and then I would say Sebastian Soto, uh, not Salcedo, but Sebastian Soto, whew, two Sebastians in a team is confusing, Jesus Ferreira and Benji Michel as your sort of out-and-out number nine possibilities. I I might want to put a caveat on that. I believe Benji Michel is more of a winger, but okay. he's he's a direct player that could serve as a get in behind number nine as well. But I do think for Orlando okay. City and probably that, for this group as well, he is more likely to play out wide. Okay, that does make more sense because I, I was sort of going off of like where I'd seen him deployed previously. Yeah. And it didn't make sense with that we have two number nines to have him then be a third number yeah, nine. Yeah. That seems like depth you don't need in a squad that is small. going to be pretty, pretty small and thus not that deep. So, okay, so then that makes more sense for him to be a wide option. I think it also portrays that I just have an assumption that Ulianez will be starting on one of the wings. I hope so, man. I hope so. He's had a rough go of it recently. He He's has. back in California. I read dealing with some sort of family situation, and yep. so I hope things are okay there. But he's not playing for here in vain on loan from Wolfsburg, so he's kind of two links away from his home club right now. He hasn't played professional soccer in a while, but he's so talented. We saw him with the U.S. in January camp in 2020 against Costa Rica's senior team, and he was really good. He was one of the best players in that game, cutting inside on his right foot from the left wing. Taylor, I love Ulianas, and I'm, I'm glad <laughs> you're in that boat with me. Oh, yeah. Uh, I definitely have him starting uh, on one of the wings. I'm assuming the right wing, but we've seen him on the left before for the U.S. senior team. So who knows? Uh, and then of your remaining options, Joe, who would you like to see start for whatever reason? I could see Georgi Mihailovic start on the left and cut inside mm-hmm. and, and play that narrow winger role that we see with the with the U.S. sometimes. I could see Sebastian Salcedo do a similar job. He's right-footed, but typically plays on the left for Pumas, even though he's not playing for them much right now either. He's playing mostly with their U-20s. I guess he's out of favor there. And then you've got Jonathan Lewis, who's more right-footed, can play on the left or on the right. He's played on the left more recently. There's a lot of left-wingers on this group. And then Benji Michel, who I do think probably fits more on the right. I'd like okay. to see in a perfect world Ulianas and Sebastian Salcedo start, but it doesn't seem reasonable to have two guys who really haven't been playing and have roughly similar profiles playing at the same time, one on each wing. So Taylor, I, I don't really know where I fall on this. Which one do you think if we, if we continue to go with the senior model of like whoever, if it's like Christian Pulisic as the number 10, even if we don't have number 10s in this team, but the kind of rotation thing we've seen where sometimes that left central midfielder goes out wide and plays like on the left wing and the left winger becomes more central. Which of the two players that we've talked about so far do you think give you that best option? I'm assuming it's Georgi Mihailovic more central and then it sounds like it's Sebastian Salcedo would be the other option out wide. Yeah, I'd love to see Mihailovic start as one of the three central midfielders and then push high into that front line and play almost in the left half space and then rotate with Uliana as a rotate with Sebastian Saucedo because they all have kind of similar profiles. You could have that clean rotation and not lose a lot in the attack. I don't know that we'll see that, but I think it could be kind of cool. All right. But it, but do you have a player of that group? It sounds like it's Uliana's that, that you're just, you think does the most exciting thing or you're just yes, most yes. excited to see. Uliana's is my, probably my favorite player on this whole roster. Maybe Mauricio mm-hmm. Pineda is in that, in, in close contention for that spot in my heart. But Uliana is mm-hmm. such a talented player. This could be a great chance for him to get a little bit of confidence back on the field, get back into form. Yeah. I'd be happy with him starting on the left or on the right. I think I have him, I think I have him on the left in my preferred starting 11, but uh, beggars can't be choosers, Taylor. 
that, that's fair. Uh, but, but I think I'm with you, especially on Uliana's because, like, I never know how much stock to put into these types of competitions and how much clubs care about them. But I think if you're Wolfsburg and he's gone to Heronveen, maybe you have some questions about, like, what's gone wrong there? I'm sure yeah. they've got scouts telling them every single day. But if he goes and plays for the U.S. in Olympic qualifiers and scores a goal or two or gets some assists or just looks very lively, my hope would be that that, like, tells his club team that, no, there's a lot here. It just has to be developed in a certain way or and he needs to find a better situation. So I have a lot of... I think, uh, expectation hope for Ulianez in this competition. Uh, I don't know if he will be the one getting, uh, all the goals. I'm assuming that will be one of the two players we haven't really talked about yet. And I'm a little bit confused about our number nine options, Joe. Okay. So what we've got Jesus Ferreira and Sebastian mm-hmm. Soto. Where yes. are you at on these guys, Taylor? Where's the disconnect? They're different. <laughs> <laughs> like, like for, for everything we've talked about previously when we've talked about these players, that Jesus Ferreira is, um, I think the more mobile, the the more likely to be that false nine, yep. the one to kind of drop in and create midfield overloads and try to combine quickly. Uh, Sebastian Soto, from everything I've seen from him, both with uh, Norwich's academy more recently and then with Telstar before that when he was on loan, he's he's going to lead the line. He's going to fight for long mm-hmm. balls. He can win stuff in the air. He's probably the best aerial threat aside from maybe one of the center backs on this team. So I think it's just that we have this this – sort of out and out number nine who can lead the line, stretch the defense, cause problems in the air, is going to fight for everything. And then Jesus Ferreira, who I'm sure has a, has a good vertical, but I don't think does that same thing. So it just feels like we'll probably get uh, a very case-by-case, very uh, opponent-heavy approach when it comes to these number nines. Yeah, I think I think they're just brought in to do different things. I think that is the answer almost to the confusion itself about them being different. Mm-hmm. They, they're here to be different, I think. Jesus Ferreira is that drop-in kind of number nine, Soto's more of the classic, I'm going to stay high and then operate in the box kind of number nine. Yeah, he'll drop in sometimes, but that's not really his game. Ferreira is here to get more reps in the role that Berhalter wants him in. I think that's that's primarily why he's in this group, and he's just one of the best options at that spot in the whole pool anyway. And then Sebastian Soto is just here to bring a different look. He could just change things up off the bench in the 60th minute. He could come in and start against Mexico if the Ferreira thing hasn't been working. It just allows Jason Christ to have two different looks to throw out the opposing defense, and I think that has value. Yeah, I suppose that makes sense because because then I think where my head goes is like I would prefer to have like if you have let's say you are going to be false nine more mobile striker. I always love a system in which you have that starting number nine who reflects that their backup and then a different sort of striker yeah. as your sort of third choice to bring on if you need to change it up entirely. I don't always love when it has to be one. Okay, that player needs a break, but this player coming on does something very different. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure Jason Christ. Christ can coach his way around that. But it does also then allow you to, maybe it's Sebastian Soto comes on to stretch the defense and be the hold to play, but then you still have Jesus Ferreira on the field running off of that. Like, yeah, I think there yeah. are ways they could play together, especially if the U.S. is chasing. But I think it, it does also then make sense that even if the system has been working for 60 minutes of Ferreira running all over the place and Costa Rica not knowing what to do, there's an argument to be made for if they adjust and they put on a more mobile defender, or they have one of their midfielders drop deeper and just mark that player. Then you change it up in the 60th minute, bring on something entirely different and it necessitates another plan uh, or change of plan for Costa Rica or whomever it might be. So I think that versatility also probably a positive uh, more so than I'm letting it be in my mind. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of people talk about how it's unfortunate that Abobasi isn't on this roster. We mentioned it briefly earlier. 
I'm kind of I'm kind of fine with the fact that he's not on this roster. I like him as a player. He's good with Portland. I think it would have been fun to get to see him as a nine, which I think is his best position, even though we see him out wide a lot for Gio Savarese. But I'm not necessarily convinced that he's a better player than Jesus Ferreira as a nine or Sebastian Soto as a nine. And so I'm in the camp that says it's it's kind of fine that Jason Christ just brought in two nines and they have different profiles. You'd like for there to be a third, but when the roster is only 20 players, there's only so much you can do, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm with you. The, the three omissions I had that I wanted to ask you about were uh, you probably see uh, Eric Williamson and Tanner Tessman. You've sort of addressed them all individually, so I don't have to. But even there, not, like there are reasons for why they could have been included. There are arguments to be made for how they could have made this team better. But I don't think... Like, we have that sort of Landon Donovan-esque, like, I can't believe this player isn't included. Oh, man, we're going to have some problems. Like, there are definitely question marks about this roster, but I think some of those would have already existed because of the many, many names that could have been here and are not. So I I think, to some extent, then, like, I I personally like a lot of what I've seen from uh, Ibobasi, and he's been on the show, so I have that personal (laughs) sort of like, yeah, he's been here, let's get him him on the field, let's make things happen. But I'm not going to then let that supersede my just looking at this team and thinking, yeah, Jason Christ probably knows what he's doing or I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and hope that that's the case. But if it's not, again, I won't panic entirely, but I will probably say, I do wonder if maybe Jeremy makes this team better. Yeah. And and he might. We Monday don't... morning quarterbacking is, I guess, what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. And we, we can Monday, we can Thursday morning quarterback. Yeah. Is that is that the right day or Friday? Whenever <laughs> yeah. we're going to have Friday that Costa Rica yeah. review out yeah. Friday morning. Thank you. But overall, I think the squad is solid. They've got a good chance to get out of the group. It's gonna be it's gonna be yep. tricky. There are players who I would have liked to see. Keaton Parks is not in this group. I think he would have brought that creativity as a central midfielder, as that number eight that maybe the group is lacking. Caden hmm. Clark could have played as as a central midfielder as well, but he's never played as a he's as just eight a in a baby. midfield three. He's, he's a baby. just a baby. He's a baby. You're right. Pomical <laughs> is the other one that I I don't yeah. know entirely why he's not in this group. He'd be the best. Probably the best player on this whole squad if he's in this group, but maybe they weren't comfortable. Maybe Dallas wasn't comfortable releasing him after he'd gotten back to fitness. We don't, we don't know what the situation is there, but the squad is good enough to advance from the group. And now we just get to sit back and see whether or not they're actually going to do it. There's only one FC Dallas player, right? Jesus Ferreira. Yeah, I believe so. Tanner Tessman and Pomichol did not make the cut. So we never knew. Maybe it was just FC Dallas being like, you can have one, but not (laughs) three, not two, just one. Yeah, (laughs) definitely not three. Do we want to do starting 11s briefly, Taylor, or or do we want to skip that? Um, I would like to hear your starting 11 because, <laughs> you know, I can't even be trusted to put players in the right positions. So I, let's go with what you – and let's go with the kind of thing that we usually do, Joe, of what is the thing that you would, like, 70% like to see and 30% think we'll see or vice versa. But either way, a combination of maybe what we think we'll see with what you would like to see. So not a back three, for example. Right. But right. If we're assuming that we will go with a 4-3-3 with players being roughly in the shape and positioning we've talked about, who would you like to see as your starting 11? Yeah. So combining my view with Jason Kreis's or our, our perception of Jason yeah. Kreis's view I've got JT Marcinkowski in goal. I think David Ochoa is my favorite goalkeeper on this roster, but that seems just, to be a recurring thing. He yep. hasn't been mm-hmm. as involved. So Marcinkowski in goal. Then for my center backs, I've got Mauricio Pineda as the right center back and Henry Kessler as the left center back in my back four. Then right back, I have Julian Araujo. I think he has a higher ceiling than Herrera, but I'm guessing Christ is going to go with Herrera. So I'm just covering my bases there. And then Sam mm-hmm. Vines is the obvious starter at left back. I feel more confident about him playing and starting than almost any other player in this group. So I've got, I've got, uh, Marcinkowski, then Herrera is probably the starter at right back, but I'd like to see Araujo. Pineda, Kessler, and Vines going from right to left along the back line. 
Then I've got Jackson Yule as my number six. He's a, yep. a borderline he's – a, he's a rotation player for the senior team. I think that puts him in a good spot to be a starter here. Then I've got Andres Perea and Asani Dotson as the two pressing eights, even though we haven't seen Perea play as an eight with the national team yet. I think he can do it, so I'm, I'm hoping he can, and I'm putting him in that spot. And then for my front three, I've got Jonathan Lewis on the right, Uliana's on the left, and Jesus Ferreira in the middle. All right, that is mostly what I had. I did have uh, Georgi Mihailovic instead of um, Andreas uh, Andres Perea. I'd love to so see I that. Had, I'd love to see that, by the way. I had Mihailovic. Uh, I had Cardoso, actually, as well. I had Mihailovic, Cardoso. That was definitely hard overhead. And then Jackson Newell behind them. And then I had Pineda and Glad with Herrera starting. So yeah. a few differences, but for the most part, uh, we are on the same page. I did have one more question for you about Jackson Newell specifically, if you don't mind. Please. So, uh, in what I had read, cause I did not pay as much attention to him, especially near the, like the end of last season. Um, do you feel like he has improved his defensive ability as well as a little bit of his mobility? Cause it sounds like he's been asked to do more of a defensive job with San Jose and has improved there, does cover a bit more ground, can sort of, I guess, read situations. His positioning is a little bit better. Again, this is all from what I have read of his game. I'm wondering, how you feel about him as that number six, not just with this team, but in terms of what we've seen, say, Tyler Adams do at that spot with the senior team. Matias Almeida has asked Yule to improve his defensive work, playing in that man-marking mm-hmm. system that requires a lot of Uh-oh. defensive mobility. Jackson Yule has done that. He has okay. improved his defensive work, cool. but he's still not a mobile defensive player, if that okay. makes sense. You can take me, yeah. put me on the field under Almeida, and, and I, I might get better at it, but I'm still not going to cover ground like Tyler Adams. So... When you have Jackson Ewell as a number six, you really have to make sure you can cover him. Just like, you know, Barcelona's had to do with Busquets. It's a very, 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 very rough comparison. But similar profiles of players. You have to have the players around him or the system around him to counterpress competently. And if, if you do, you're going to be fine. If you don't, you're going to be in big trouble. So that's kind of where I stand on Jackson Ewell with the U.S. Alrighty. All right. So we've talked about the U.S. squad. Uh, we have not yet talked about their opponents in this competition, really. Uh, we have Thursday e- uh, afternoon, I guess, Thursday, March 18th, 3 p.m. It's the USA versus Costa Rica. Our plan right now is to watch that game. We are going to be doing another stereo live show that evening. I think instead of 8, we'll maybe aim for around 6 p.m. Eastern. Uh, this is all sort of tentative at the moment, but that will be us so doing a version of a quick take, hot take, reviewing that, talking a little bit about uh, the squad, the team, what we saw in that game, answering questions, uh, all that good stuff. And then we'll do a more in-depth recorded uh, review of that one and maybe pepper in some listener questions as well. That will be the Friday show. But looking to Thursday, Joe, against Costa Rica... Um, it's tough to find a lot of information about a lot of these teams and how they're going to play and, and their, like their entire roster. There's a lot of red links on Wikipedia is what I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm getting at, but let's talk, uh, to the extent we feel comfortable about Costa Rica's team. This is the most important game. I love that we're doing the stereo it show is. after and, and we're going to have that full review out on Friday. I'm a little bit nervous about it. I'm not going to lie. No. Having said that, I won't be nervous or too upset. I am very nervous about this game. Yeah. And that's, that's somewhat justified because if the U.S. doesn't win this game and they, they drop those three points, so Costa Rica's on three points, you assume Mexico beats the Dominican Republic. Then the U.S. comes in and they beat the Dominican Republic. And then you've got to face Mexico and you have to win that game if you want to advance. And so, if the U.S. doesn't win this first game against Costa Rica, their path to get out of the group is certainly not impossible, but it is much more challenging. So this game is really important for the U.S.'s qualifying hopes, and and it's fun to have a game with stakes. We haven't had that in so long, even though this is not a senior game. 
seeing the U.S. matchup against Costa Rica on Thursday is going to be so much fun. And a lot of that, for me, comes down to the fact that we don't know exactly what we're getting out of Costa Rica. Yeah. We know some things, led by head yep. coach Douglas Sequeira. All but three players on Costa Rica's 20-man roster play in leagues that are active right now. That's a big note because almost all of the U.S.'s roster is made up of MLS players. And MLS is not in season. They start on April 17th, 18th, some somewhere in that range. They're a month away from starting. So Costa Rica's fit. They're ready. A lot of them play together, and a lot of them play in the league in Costa Rica, which is yep. a decent level. And Fifteen in the domestic league, seven coming yeah. from Alajuelense. Yeah, yep. yeah. so it's, it's a group that likely has much better familiarity with each other than the U.S. has between its players. And, and so they're, they're fit, they're ready, they know each other, and they have some real talent on this roster, Taylor. They do. And I want to start with Luis Diaz, yeah. who is a player that I am mildly terrified of. As you should be. As you should be. Somewhere <laughs> Jordan Angeli is smiling kind of evilly uh, because Luis Diaz of the Columbus crew. Yeah. The one note I have on him, because I, I know a bit more about him, I didn't have to write it all down, but I just have fast. No big that's deal. it. He's... Mm-hmm. He, that's such a that was a weird flex on my part. I don't know why. That was like the dumbest <laughs> hey, flex hey, ever. Flex what you want to flex, my friend. I just and uh, I think you have definitely done more research and paying attention to Major League Soccer than I have. So uh, I think you're justified in saying like, yeah, I didn't have to go as deep as you did. <laughs> whereas I definitely spent a decent chunk of my morning watching Luis Diaz play. I just take too many notes, and so I got to cut back on that <laughs> a little bit and just rely on what I do know. And I do know that Luis Diaz is really fast. But honestly, Taylor, mm-hmm. I'm more interested in your view on him. You watched the film, as you just said. What did you notice? Mm-hmm. Why do you think the U.S. should maybe be a little bit afraid of this guy? Not that I disagree. Yeah, I mean, because it seems like he can kind of handle anything. Yeah. That, like, if you want to get into a physical uh, confrontation with him, he can handle the physicality. If you want to get into a foot race with him, he can do that, too. But then he has the the footwork and the dribbling ability, and he'll take you on. He'll do a few stepovers. There are... I think a few different similarities in my mind to the player that we've talked about at length today, Yunus Musa, where he can go at people, but you can also see that sort of step over, step over, and then that third touch sends him 20 yards down the line, but then he gets on the ball before it rolls out of bounds and kind of continues the attack. I just, I kept seeing him ride a challenge while dribbling the ball at pace and then making a smart decision with it. So it it felt like he is a player who could, for any number of reasons, cause this U.S. team some problems. He's a very good player. He was great for the yeah. crew in their win over the Seattle Sounders in MLS Cup. And I expect he's going to be a real contributor to this team. Costa Rica has so much depth on this squad. And, and I don't want to overhype them, but I do think they are a good group. That I read, I read someone say that he might not even be a starter in this team mm. if, if everything kind of pans out differently. There's a chance that he's coming off the bench as a super sub, but he's... He's going to play on the right side when he does come in, likely, or, or certainly on one of the wings in either a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3, depending on what Sequeira decides to go with. But both Luis Diaz and Nashville SC's Randall Leal are two guys that I'm really watching here. Leal's likely to start on the left wing in one of those shapes. He had some really great moments with Nashville last season. He had some inconsistent moments as well, but he's a talented player. He's 24, so he's one of the older players in this group. He is He's one of the most important players for Sequeira as well. Uh, sorry, who was that again? Randall Leal. Gotcha. Okay. I wanted to make sure we weren't about to talk about the same player because <laughs> uh, Luis Jose Hernandez, uh, a, a, a big time defender for both Saprissa and this Costa Rica team, is another one who is slightly on the older side. He's 23 years old, which is older for this team, but has already made uh, at least one appearance, I think a couple appearances for the Costa Rica senior team and is the type of player that I think Costa Rica are so good at like having sneak up on, especially American fans, where... For the longest time, that senior Costa Rica team, you could sort of pick 
most of the players. You could usually pick a starting 11 without really having to look at who had been called into the squad. And uh, we've reached the point where a lot of those players are getting on or maybe not as automatic selections. So I am apprehensively excited to see this team because it's a lot of 22, 23, 24-year-old players who I think will be that next generation, will step up, and will have a lot more familiarity with uh, in a couple years. But for right now, it, it, it does seem like a team that could easily take the U.S. by surprise if they're not up for it, if they underestimate them. Because, like, ah, oh, it's a bunch of Costa Rican League players. Nah, they're not going to be that good. And to your point, if we don't have Luis Diaz starting, then I'm going to be immediately concerned about maybe <laughs> overlooking some of these players. Yeah, I mean, Costa Rica in their domestic league has been one of MLS's feeder leagues, and they've they've gone out and gotten players from Costa Rica pretty consistently over the last few years. And so that gives you an idea. Luis Diaz and Randall Leal are both recent additions to MLS and they they started out in Costa Rica. So there there are players that maybe we aren't as familiar with that play in Costa Rica's domestic league that could play in MLS and we would have more familiarity with them and we'd be even more afraid of them. So this is a strong group that the US is going to have to be ready for. And then uh their number 9, literally their number 9, uh Jurgens Montenegro or Jurgens Montenegro either way, just a good name that we should all be paying attention to. As is the other striker on this roster, Manfred Ugalde, who plays yeah. for Lamo in the second division in Belgium. They're a CFG club. I some, I, it took me a while to figure out what their actual level was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I I hope that's right. Maybe maybe I'm wrong. It's like but, second division B, I think I yeah. saw. I was a little confused. Yeah. yeah. He plays in the lower divisions in Belgium, but he's under contract with CFG. We could see Ugalde play for NYCFC at some point in the future if oh he makes that move. He scored a lot of goals for them this season and is five foot seven, but he packs a punch. So there's another mm-hmm. player to watch for. And is also a baby. Yep. He's 18 years old. Yep. There we are. Uh, so that's Costa Rica. That will be Thursday evening. We'll have probably lots more to say on that stereo show and then certainly on the, on the Friday review. Then on Sunday at 7 p.m., uh, the U.S. is playing the Dominican Republic, a team that I know even less about than Costa Rica. I can tell you these two things. Uh, nine of the 20 players on their roster play in Spain. Five of the 20 are from their domestic league. So uh, Spain doing more for the Dominican Republic than the domestic league sort Sort of, sort of speaking. Uh, I was trying to figure out why, because I thought of Mariano Diaz, I thought of Junior Firpo as these Dominican players who then play in Spain. Firpo, at least, will uh, end up representing Spain. Did not realize that uh, I think the United States is the number one uh, in terms of population of Dominicans outside of the Dominican Republic. Spain is number two, and it is the the largest population of Dominicans in Europe. So I think that is why we do see more of that connection. I feel like there's also more of a likelihood that Spanish, uh, like. Spanish-born players with Dominican heritage do the Curacao thing, or to some extent the U.S. thing, of maybe if they're not going to play for Spain, they do want to play international football, uh, then maybe we'll get some of that movement happening. But I think that relationship will only get stronger. It's another country that I think right now is easy to overlook, and I wouldn't say we should be really wary of this uh, Dominican Republic team coming in, but it is another one, again, similar to Curacao, that I think a few years from now is probably a stronger uh, footballing, soccering nation than we certainly see them being right now. Yeah, I read a really good article by John Arnold in his newsletter. Go follow John Arnold. John Arnold, excuse yeah. me. He has the best coverage of CONCACAF of anyone out there. And he had a really good piece on their manager, on this Dominican Republic manager, mm-hmm. Jacques Passy. I butchered that, obviously. Jacques Passy. It's confusing because it should with. be Jacques, but he's Mexican, right? Yeah. We'll just, we'll just so go with Jacques. Pass, I don't know. Who knows. Yeah. But he's the current manager hmm. of this U23 team and the Dominican Republic senior team former head coach of the St. Kitts and Nevis national team, which is a nice little Wikipedia fact for you. It just it gave me better perspective on this whole program. There are severe underdogs in this group, but 
making it to the Olympics and getting out of the group even would be a massive achievement for them. I don't expect that to happen, but it, it would be kind of fun if the U.S. and the Dominican Republic made it out of this group. But again, not not likely. No, they do have, uh, what, Rafael Nunez, who I, I guess is playing for Atletico Madrid. You've got, uh, Fabian Messina, who is, uh, playing for 1899 Hoffenheim. So you do have those European connections elsewhere. But, uh, as far as I understand it, neither one has made any senior appearances or is likely to anytime soon. So, uh, maybe while they've got the club, uh, sort of like reference there, that we shouldn't let that be too, uh, nerve inducing. Yeah, it's it's a lot of youth players at some of those teams over in Europe, and then it's a lot of Dominican you know, Republic domestic players, and then one guy mm-hmm. who plays for Black Rock FC in USL League 2, which is an amateur league. So it's a wide range of skill sets and a wide range of experiences right now, but it's hard to see that coming together in any real way. All right. So uh, I don't have much else to say about the Dominican Republic team unless you do, Mr. Lowry. Carry us forward, Taylor Rockwell. All right. Then let's talk about the U.S.'s final opponent, who I agree with you, Joe, going all the way back to the beginning of this one. I am sort of happier that we're in a group with them. Uh, If we lose to Costa Rica, then I am less happy about that. But I would rather face Mexico in the group stage and then ideally in the final than have things go weird and get them uh, in the semi, because that would be a much more disappointing thing to lose out on uh, to Mexico in the semis. At least last time it was Honduras, I think, and that I can handle a bit more. But this Mexico team, not bad. Not bad, Joe. Not bad at all. Felipe Cardenas tweeted that some members of the Mexican press are referring to this group as one of the strongest U23 teams in the nation's history. Hmm. So that's cool, right? That's that's yeah. really cool. They have a similar situation with the U.S., at least MBD, a roughly MBD. similar situation with no Edson Alvarez, no Diego Lainez. They're missing a couple other guys who are overplaying in Europe and who would be age eligible for this group. But led by Jaime Lozano, all all 20 of the players on Mexico's roster play in Liga MX. So they have a lot of experience at a better league than MLS. They have plenty of players to keep your eyes out for. This is going to be a tough opponent for the U.S. Let's talk about a few of those then. Are there any other, are there any like names in particular that you thought were particularly compelling? Because to your point, uh, I think I saw a story. Here, here it is. Uh, almost every player called up has been active in Liga Mekis, uh, and almost every player on this roster has played uh, at least 500 minutes and yep. many more so this season. So it's a very active team with a lot of experience. Uh, but with that said, Joe, who makes you uh, all the more nervous? Up first, because there are plenty, is JJ Macias, yep. who is a striker for Chivas. Mm-hmm. He scored 11 goals yep. already this season. He's a real threat in the box with either foot or his head. He does a lot of damage in the 18-yard box. He's mobile. He sees space really well from what I have watched of him. He's a guy that every team in this group, Costa Rica, the United States, and the Dominican Republic, are going to have to watch for, game plan for, and make sure that they do not let get free. They don't let him get free in the box because if they do, Macias is going to do some real damage. Yeah, he is one of two players, uh, Macias and uh, Gilberto Sepulveda, who played for Mexico at the 2019 U20 World Cup, uh, where they did lose every single game. And so for a moment, I was like, well, that's good. Like, they lost every single game. They can't be that strong. But only two players, and it was definitely their strongest performing players who are now still with the team. Sepulveda, I think, will be starting at center back, but is definitely a very good defender. And then, yeah, I would assume uh, Macias will be their starting number nine. If it's not him, then it's uh, Santiago Munoz. Uh, 
not Munez, who I think was the one from the goal franchise. Uh, Santiago Munoz is a U17 World Cup runner-up. Uh, three goals and nine appearances for Santos Laguna. From what I saw of him, he looks like a good player. I wouldn't say he's like, like lightning fast or like is like Erling Holland in front of goal and can't be, can't be stopped. He just seems like a competent, capable player. Yeah, he looks good. He's a dual national as well. Um, he, he could play for the U.S. He was born in El Paso. He's, he's broken through a little bit in Liga MX this season and has a chance to continue to do that for Santos Laguna over the rest of this season. And this, this tournament even could be a good launch point for him to continue elevating his game. So yeah, Mexico has no, they're certainly not hurting for options in their attack. Let's put it that way. No, and I think that that extends to Sebastian Cordova, who I saw, like, uh, Cesar Hernandez, I think, listed as more of a central attacking midfielder, a central midfielder. I've seen him play wide on the right for Club America, but either way, I think he's going to be a very good player and already is. Uh, strong under pressure. He's able to hold the ball up, but then still find passes, and he seems pretty confident with both feet. Uh, I think he's left foot dominant, but it's telling that I couldn't really tell because he plays, like, like, like line splitting passes and balls over the top with either foot. Uh, I, I understand why he might be played centrally and kind of facilitate some of those attacks because he seems like a very good performer. We had a similar approach to getting ready for this show because I also reached out to Cesar Hernandez, really good <laughs> writer on all things Mexican soccer, and asked him for some of the inside scoop on this Mexican mm. U23 team. And maybe my biggest takeaway that doesn't have to do with a specific player, uh, Cesar said that the U23 manager, Jaime Lozano, has talked a lot about working with the senior side, with Tata Martino and the rest of that senior group for the Mexican national team. So a lot of members of the media, of the media are thinking that it's going to be a 4-3-3, a Tata Martino-esque 4-3-3 mm-hmm. with this U23 group that's aggressive, that presses high, that moves the fullbacks really high and just has no, no regret about going forward and going forward very quickly. So we could see Macias lead that line in the front three. We could see Cordova be one of the central midfielders that's really aggressive and pushing high over and over again. There's a lot of talent in this group, and that 4-3-3 style that Tata Martino likes so much, I think fits the group of players very well. Did Cesar happen to tell you anything about vulnerabilities or potential opportunities for the United States <laughs> to exploit? By chance, maybe? Hopefully? Possibly? I, I don't believe uh, he dipped into that section of of our preparation, but this is a strong squad. This is an A-minus team for Mexico. If the U.S. comes into that game and they need to win, and both teams need to win for some reason, uh, Mexico is favored, without a doubt, unless they've bombed in the tournament up to that point. This is a stronger Mexico team than it is a stronger U.S. team, but I want to be very clear, that is not indicative of the status of the two full pools, just indicative of the status of the two U23 squads that Jason Kreiss and Jaime Lozano have called in. And and I think I'm correct in saying that it's not as though we're locked into any of these players for the Olympics, right? You can change it up correct. pretty much entirely. Yep. Mm-hmm. So we could, based on uh, congestion this summer with how many competitions there could be for the U.S. to play in, like maybe this is uh, more or less the team that we're going to send to the Olympics if they do end up qualifying. But we might also get some of those names we've already talked about included in there and giving us a stronger team. And obviously, we have the three overage players to be added in as well. Correctamundo. All right. Uh, anything else uh, to talk about with with Mexico? We only talked about a few players, but obviously we'll talk about them more as that game gets closer. Yeah, I mean, we could talk about every player on this roster, but I think we've given the general impression of how good of a group it is. And it's going to yeah. be a fun game, Taylor. It's going to be really they, fun. They oh, score hopefully. Goals. Hopefully. They're good. 
Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully so. All right, Joe. Well, uh, I'm going to say that we have uh, previewed the U.S. roster. We've talked about their opponents at Olympic qualifying. We've certainly talked about Yunus Musa, but we will be back later in the week to talk about this week's Champions League games, which uh, I am excited to be watching today, even if maybe some of them feel like they are more uh, in the bag than others. But we'll be back to talk about those on Thursday, the live stereo show Thursday evening to talk about the USA's Olympic qualifying opener against Costa Rica. And then you and I will break down that game more fully with some lister questions and some other stuff in there as well on Friday. But for now, Joe, anything else to add before we call it a day? No, I think I think we've covered it well. I am very excited for this tournament. I'm excited that Eunice Moose is a player we're going to get to watch and talk about for the next, yep. hopefully, long time, X number of years, whatever it's going to be. <laughs> uh, this was a really fun show filled with lots of exciting things. There we go. All right, well, Joe, thank you very much for taking all the time to do all the research and talk to me about all the things. You got it. Listeners, thank you all very much for listening. We will talk to you again very soon. 